Hello and welcome to the Justice and Coffee podcast, the podcast where we discuss a variety of justice-related issues affecting the world over a cup of coffee. This week I got the chance to talk with Emily Chalk, the founder of Ella's. Ella's is a charity that Emily set up back in 2014 to provide safe housing and long-term aftercare for women who have experienced abuse through trafficking and exploitation. We sat down together on Ash Wednesday 2020 after a long day's work and enjoyed a pot of Blue Bear Colombian decaf and a stack of pancakes. I should mention we recorded this one in Emily's lovely London flat but it is quite close to a railway line, so every five or so minutes you may hear a locomotive or two rumbling gently past the window. Emily is an incredibly humble and servant-hearted individual who has been resisting my many invitations to come on the podcast and share her story with us, but she finally acquiesced, and I'm so glad she did. Emily Chalk, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me in your apartment this this fine evening. Very welcome. It's it's unusual for us to do it this way, but you've been so busy recently that getting the time to get you in the studio in in, in the daytime hours and record this is just it's just been almost impossible. So, what is it? Five minutes past eight on. Ash Wednesday. Wednesday, So we're doing a sort of late night podcast with Emily Chalk tonight. And I have coffee and pancakes because it was pancake day yesterday, right? Yes. But we can still have them. So I've probably, this is probably (laughs) number four or five. Thank you for preparing these for me. Very welcome. I've also got coffee now. I was wondering about this on the way over, whether drinking coffee this time of night was wise, even though it's decaf, right? I just think, ostensibly, if it looks like coffee and smells like coffee and has the aroma, has the the heat, it is like, will it have a placebo effect, even if the caffeine's been extracted from it and keep you up at night? What do you think? It will keep me up at night. So I'm not risking it. Which is why you're drinking gin and tonic. (laughs) Against the New Year's resolution. (laughs) You Um, weren't meant to tell anybody that. Busted. That's okay. We could rename it the Justice and Gin and Tonic podcast. (laughs) It's got a ring to it. Emily, I have wanted to get you on this podcast for some time now. Um, I'm glad we finally made it happen. As you know, I was in Thailand a few Mm -hmm. weeks ago with work and I decided to upload a, a picture sort of using the blue bear mug or a blue bear coffee bag or one of our stickers or something um, to denote my presence in thailand and talk about some of the partnerships we have at blue bear and within seconds of that <laughs> within minutes or even hours of that going live i got a text message from you saying well just demonstrably sharing how excited you were that i was in <laughs> thailand because thailand particularly bangkok means means quite a lot to you doesn't it why why is that yes it does um because i lived there from um 2006 to december 2011 um, i moved there when i was 23 years old and i lived in nana which is where you visited yeah so so describe yeah describe that <coughs> part of bangkok 
because I didn't know what to expect when I arrived, mm-hmm. and I found it. Yeah, I was. I liked it. Now I think I texted myself. I'm already. You know, I've been in four hours, and I already love it. Mm-hmm. It's a, that exciting sort of cornucopia of activity and vibrance and smell and flavour and movement and sound and that all of those metropolis feelings you know and sensations i i personally love those i find them sort of intoxicating and exciting but obviously it has a lot of problems mm-hmm. too so for people that haven't been to bangkok particularly nana and um mm-hmm. you know the, the red light district mm-hmm. which is actually where you live right yeah describe it to somebody for me or do your do your best to if you can um, yeah, so Nana is a huge red light district. I forget now how many thousands of women, um, young women, will be in the sex industry there, but it's so prevalent. Mm. Um, I couldn't leave my apartment when, when I lived there without yeah, seeing um, young Thai women with um, old white men. Mm. And um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's everywhere you look in that area. Um, so I used to uh, visit in the bars where there's where the Thai women work, um, and uh, that they would predominantly cater for Western men. Yeah. But then, um, not far up the road was the, the area Sukhumvit Soy Three, where lots of um, Uzbek women worked, which who I ended up mostly working with. Um, and they would cater for the Arab men. And then there was another section where you would find African women. So there's women from all over the world. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, men from all over the world as well. Um, and, yeah, it's a huge, huge problem. What I found quite bizarre about it really was just how open <laughs> people were. Now, I was probably, I think, probably, to be fair to say, the, the younger sort of range of that um, demographic but still very much in that demographic as a white single male walking around the red light district um and i picked up a conversation with a guy when i was there in a Mm -hmm. bar whilst i was working Mm -hmm. and he was from australia Mm -hmm. probably so early 60s had a quite tragic story about losing his wife actually in thailand in a tuk-tuk accident um yeah sad um but he started off quite sort of reserved about, um, you know, why he was chosen to spend that time there. But yeah. by the end, he was very, very open with, yeah. with the fact that he, he uses sex workers <clears throat> quite frequently and mm. began to advise me on where it would be appropriate to get, you know, get the best price and, mm. and all the rest. Um, but it really didn't take a lot to get that information yeah. from him. And later on, I was in my hotel and yeah. uh, gym and it was mainly full of white, different, yeah. very, sort of, guys between 30 and 60 probably on their own and to some mm. degree living the dream or what, what they thought was the dream of working on offshore rigs or whatever coming to spend their time mm. and money in Bangkok because it gave the opportunity for fairly cheap beer cheap food and, mm. and young women yeah um I just found it bizarre <coughs> just how uh, flagrant it was yeah. how blatant it was how openly discussed it was and what was it like to be a young woman in that environment spending the majority of your your early years there between what 23 and 30 or 29 29 yeah Yeah. um yeah well about the men I I guess so when I was living there and seeing that every day um people would assume that I hated those men and I mean I 
I'm asked that all the time, you must be, you must hate men, it's, you know, um, I remember my mum coming to visit me, and her crying, when she was like, I just hate that you have to see this every day, and, um, but it became so normal that didn't even really notice right. it anymore, right. um, and actually even began to have a lot of compassion for many of the men yeah. that I met, so I would go into um, Nana Red Light District and sit in the bars and have conversations um, there with the women, but occasionally would have conversations with the men um, who were there to, you know, meet the women, and lots of really... Um, yeah, really t- difficult conversations mm. with them too. I remember one man telling me um, he hated himself for being there and he would go back later. He said he would be in his room and he would, you know, ask for forgiveness for <laughs> what he was doing huh. and being there and just, um, yeah. And a- another time, and actually an Australian guy as well, um, he, I hadn't said anything to him. I was just sat, um, I think I'd sat talking to a woman. She then went back up to the stage to dance and he tapped me on the shoulder and he said, I just want you to know I feel so guilty with you sat here. Mm. And I, I said, well, why is that? And um, and he said, I can see that you, you know, you're befriending this woman. And, mm. um, and then I got to explain about why um, young women ended up in that situation. And he, yeah. He got up and left. Um, wow. and that, I mean, so many examples of that. And another guy who um, I sat talking to and um, we we got chatting and um, he had a wedding ring on. And I said, what do you think your wife would think about you sat here? And he was like, yeah, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> and he said, but I was just told that this is what people do when they're in Thailand. Yeah. It's the normal thing to do. And... Um, I asked him if he had any children. He said, I've got a couple of daughters. Um, I asked him how old they were. He said, they were 19, 20 or whatever. Mm. And um, he then just looked at me and he said, please don't say it. Please don't say it. And, you know, obviously what I could say is that could be your daughter. Um, I think that's why it's so dangerous. People go there and they just assume, well, this is, everyone's happy doing this here. Yeah. this is just what people do in Thailand. Um, yeah. yeah. But don't stop to obviously understand the reasons why um, women are ending up in that situation. I want to come back to that and see if we can find out a little bit more about your perspective as having spent so much of your time there. Um, but I also want to know, like, how did you end up there? Was it... A sort of post university gap year that just you know just kept pushing back your return flight like where where did this interest in Thailand where did that where was that born from hmm. well yeah it's it was um way back from uh, childhood so um yeah, I think I re- well I do remember my dad when um I was a child must be I don't know 10 nine or ten and um he came back from a trip and um he used to go to asia regularly for work but um one day he he was in thailand and he came home and i remember him saying that he'd been to um this children's home and it made him cry because it was so terrible the conditions that children were being kept in Mm. and i knew that you know he'd seen a lot and 
been to, uh, to a lot of different countries and I'm thinking wow if that's if that's made him cry I don't think I'd seen him cry at that point so I was like that must be so awful yeah. um so I thought well that's where I'd like to go and and how old were you when when you noticed this I mean, I don't know, it must have been nine or ten, but by the time I was first day of school, so my best friend Cassie, um, we um, became, we met on the first day of school. Well, secondary school. Se- secondary yeah. school, yeah. And um, she says, I mean, I don't remember this conversation, but she says she asked me on the first day of school, um, Emily, what do you want to do when you're older? And I said to her, oh, I'm going to go to Thailand and I'm going to help women out of prostitution. I guess I must have, you know, after hearing about Thailand, wow. read up and you hear that um there is this um industry in thailand and i thought that's terrible that women and you know young women have to experience that yeah so yeah but it stayed with you i think if if i'd have told my 12 year old (coughs) pal that uh, uh, what i was going to do in my life it would have probably been i'm going to be a stuntman or uh, you know famous actor or something that obviously didn't happen with my life (laughs) <laughs> but you saw that through. I mean, it was an unusual thing probably for a 12-year-old girl to say anyway, but fast forward a decade and you s- sort of cracked on yeah. with that, that yeah, um, plan. I used to wish, pray that I wanted to do something different. Yeah. Because, yeah, I, I mean, it was a strange idea, strange plan. But, um, yeah, it just didn't go away and... Mm. Um, then I had the opportunity, actually, I went with Cassie, the, the same friend. She came with me in 2005. I, it was the point when I was like, right, I really need to do this. Um, and she came with me. We actually spent, I didn't have any contacts in Thailand, so we actually spent a few weeks in Cambodia. Oh, wow. Checking out some work there, and um, which was good. But the moment I landed in Bangkok, I was like, this is where I want to be. Wow. And I remember her being very cross with me. She was like, we've just spent five weeks in Cambodia. <laughs> You've been in Bangkok three minutes. You can't decide. But I knew that I wanted you to You just there. connected with it straight mm. away. You say you were, you were looking at some work. So obviously you weren't just like, you know, bumming it over there. Yeah. Um, you know, what were you doing? What, what was this type of work that you're involved in? I was, I was visiting uh, projects that were working with actually child trafficking victims in Cambodia. Wow. Um, which, so there's, yeah, some, lots of great work. Actually, I'm now a trustee of a charity in Cambodia. Wow. Doing some good, good work there. So you're draw to, um, you know, Southeast Asia and Asia Pacific. That, that was always trafficking. It wasn't uh, for other reasons. It was that issue that, that yeah. drew you there. Yeah, very and when you're in Bangkok, who are you who are you working for? Um, or an organisation called Nightlight. So actually, it wasn't specifically trafficking. I think I probably only began to understand that um, as I was, you know, well, yeah, the, as I got there. And um, I remember the very first night I went out on the streets of Bangkok to. Um, so we used to go out two nights a week to meet the women and. Mm. Um, and the very first night, so I was 23 years old, um, was walking along with Annie and we ran into Who, this. Who's Annie? Oh, Annie um, started Nightlight, runs okay. Nightlight. Name check. <laughs> and um, we bumped into this African woman and, yeah, she'd been trafficked to Bangkok. 
um, and heard her story and I, yeah, I just remember thinking this is so crazy. Mm. I've moved to Asia and here I am meeting an African woman. And then she was the first African woman uh, that I met. Um, and she was the only one really around at that time, but within, I think about six months, there was more, um, more and more. And now, yeah, there's, I don't know, hundreds of African women trafficked. So why do you think that's happening? Why do you think it's not just (coughs) Thai women are enough for the customers? Why is there a need to traffic African women to that area? A a demand for it. um, And as the route has become available, yeah, more and more just... Demand for a variety. Yeah, take that path. And um, yeah, so actually we used to... Towards the end of my time there, there was different um, streets, roads I would have to avoid getting home if I wanted to get home quickly because mm. there were so many African women and I got to know lots of them and they would all want to stop and talk or pray. And um, yeah, so I would have to take different roads home. <laughs> but Nightlight, yeah, have helped so many of these women get home over the last few years. Yeah, um, so, so you obviously, after noticing I was there, um, mentioned a couple of people whilst you're there you should see if you can connect with this person this person I'm really grateful for that I really enjoyed the people I was able to meet whilst I was over there and you mentioned nightlife so I went and had a coffee there or an iced tea or something and I loved it yeah it's such a cool um so nightlight have a coffee shop bang in the middle of the red light district a really good quality called city light called city light really cool uh, quality specialty coffee shop and um Obviously, I was dropping your name, Emily Chalk, <laughs> left, right, and centre. And everybody, certainly in um, City Light, responded to that name. I even got you on FaceTime to to, <laughs> to show you to some of the women there. I wasn't able to meet Annie, though, uh, unfortunately, on this occasion, but maybe next time. And yeah. So what, you know, what, how did you get connected with her? Uh, I met Annie... <clears throat> So I'd spent a few weeks in Cambodia, as I said, and um, I was, while I was in Cambodia, somebody I met there said, oh, you should meet Annie in Bangkok. And so I text, oh, not text, I don't think I actually had a mobile phone, but (laughs) (laughs) whatever, (laughs) communicated (laughs) with her and we met up and I, I think I had like two, literally two days in Bangkok before I was flying back to London. Um... I met her, I talked to her for half an hour and and within that time I, I knew I wanted to come work. They were newly set up mm. and I yeah, said to my friend Cassie, she's who I want to work with, this is what I want to do. Um, I'm going to come back here as soon as I can. And that's exactly what you did? That's exactly what I did. But I think I moved out there, yeah, maybe six months later. Amazing. So... So what brought you, so six years of your life was spent there, engaged with um, with Nightlight, building relationships. <laughs> the purpose of those relationships were to do what? To offer opportunities, knowledge, education, inform yeah. people, it worked with the police. Like How did that, how did that work? It de- um, yeah, it developed quite a lot over the years that I was there. Um, so Nightlight, they run a jewellery business and... Um, yeah, as the coffee shop and alternative employment for women mm-hmm. so Thai women um so yeah I used to as I said connect with those women Thai women and it was to build relationships 
um, offer an alternative or or simply yeah just do be <laughs> friends and um, with those women however within my first year there I then started going to um, this other area just um, not far away from where the Thai women worked um, and this is where the Uzbek women women from Uzbekistan uh, predominantly worked and um, began connecting with them and soon I realized that that was my main focus because I was really able to connect with those women they used to think I was one of them so just would welcome me in until you know I spoke English and didn't speak <laughs> Russian and but got on really well with those women and <clears throat> with um, it, I think took about a year before uh, the first Uzbek girl asked me for help um, and yeah so I would go yeah as I said a couple of times a week and just sit in this really smoky horrible bar and um, just get to know them and I would hear time and time again there's no life in my country you know some of these women were quite educated um, but <clears throat> For whatever reason, um, yeah, they they were unable to get good employment. Mm. Um, they, you know, they just wasn't the opportunity, and so then they'd become vulnerable to being trafficked. And so, yeah, as I said, heard countless times, "There's no life in my country. This is why I've come to Bangkok." Or this, um, and yeah, so lots of those difficult stories. Um, and one day was one evening in the bar and one of the women said to me oh do you see this woman over here she, she's being beaten up by her pimp um she's got bruises all over her she's had her passport stolen mm. um we've been told that maybe you can help her so we um arranged to meet at another hotel um because yeah I, I can't remember <laughs> we we planned for this this woman to say that she'd gone for a customer and we met her at mm. another hotel and um yeah that night she escaped and she actually brought a friend with her um and yeah we we took them to a safe place and within about three weeks had uh, they'd gone back home Amazing. to their country and that was the first case of then i don't know how many fr from whatever happened at that point um they kind of knew oh this english girl and this american woman <laughs> <laughs> if you see them yeah, so, I mean, so not all of the women felt that that was, the, they wanted to get out, yes. but there was, it depended on who their trafficker was or who, I mean, so some of the women were treated really badly and um, wanted a way out. Others thought, okay, I'm going to pay off my debt and um, try and earn a bit of money and then yeah. go home. Yeah. But yes, yeah, so it was all sorts of different situations. But it, yeah. Did you I imagine <coughs> if if the women started to become aware that you and the other American white woman were <laughs> were an opportunity as of an escape if they needed it? I can imagine that the pimps and the traffickers might have become aware of that as well. Would that is that true? Yeah, apparently. I don't know. I'm, yeah. Well. Were you ever? So. Did you ever <coughs> feel that you were under threat at all? Um. Because you lived yeah. right in the, in the middle yeah, of it, Yeah, right? I did. I lived right in the... I mean, it, the women... I, I was told numerous times, you be careful because next time they'll kill you or they'll get you. But, um, 
this I re- genuinely never felt unsafe there. Mm. I grew up in Croydon. There you go. You've I, had your, you've had your training. Um, and your I could, awareness yeah, training. I could never walk up my own street without like calling my brothers or my mm. dad and like, can you come? But in Bangkok, I felt perfectly safe anytime. Mm. I maybe because it was busy and um, yeah, but I never felt that. And maybe it was because it felt like the it was the work that I needed to do and. I don't know, but it's not yeah, often didn't. that I, I hear people chuckle <clears throat> at the idea of someone coming up to them and telling them that there's a threat that they might be killed. Yeah, I mean, I can't even get in an Uber by myself, so it's not that I'm brave. But so you um, had a, a supernatural gifting of bravery <laughs> whilst you're over there. Maybe that's it. Yeah. It's remarkable. What 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 brought you home? I came back to London. Say I left Bangkok, coming back to London, saying I'm going to move to Uzbekistan because I honestly don't right. think I would have ever come back to London if I thought that's me now yes yeah like that seemed way too boring but um yeah I came back um and I I guess I was probably quite burnt out mm. and I remember saying to someone I just want a job where no one tells me their problems mm. and I can um just have a bit of time and then I thought you have to be careful what you wish for because mm. I ended up working in a reception and it was really boring. So I did that for a few months and then um, started thinking about where it was next. And I did go out to Uzbekistan, actually. Um, the Thai anti-trafficking police invited me to a conference out there or, um, and went to, I don't know, speak to some people about the situation in Bangkok. And um, so got to go there, got to visit some of the women that we'd helps um, yeah so that was really cool yeah Yeah. and um yes i'm still in touch with several of them um and yeah so that was yeah really good but i also thought that would be a huge move having just Mm. come back from bangkok Mm. and i don't think it was at that point one that i was able to do so um ended up back in london but as we then, speak today, you're you're not <coughs> working as a receptionist. No, you, you've got yourself no, nothing nothing against that. But no, just, there's absolutely no, nothing I, against that. But that's I, not the career path you've taken. You've started your own charity. Yeah. How did that come about? Yeah. So. And what is it? What is <laughs> what is your charity? It's called Ella's. We're, we're a new charity actually. Just got a charity number because. Up until a few weeks ago, we were um, a project under a, a bigger charity, but we're now yet yeah, our own charity. But you've and been going a bit. We've been going for uh, about four years. Okay. <clears throat> or five years, yeah, depends when you start counting. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so we run a couple of homes um, for women who've come out of situations of trafficking and exploitation. And the idea is for it to be long term, um, to be a place where women can feel that they have stability so that they can start um, piecing back their life um, and accessing counselling, accessing education, employment, whatever else is um, needed to yeah. for them to uh, get their life back on track. Why did you start that? Why did I start that? Um, well it's, it's back to the Uzbek women again and um, and Bangkok. Um, 
So it is called Ella's because it's named after Ella, who I met in Bangkok. Um, and so I met her, I think I said to you, when we spoke on the phone when you were in Bangkok. Um, she was working in um, a place that would have been directly opposite City Light Coffee Shop. Mm. Um, and I got to know her over several years and she was always on her own. Um, she was ethnically, or she is ethnically Russian and, um, maybe that's why, I don't know that the other women didn't speak to her. I I don't know. But anyway, I would spend a lot of time with her. Um, so when I left Bangkok, I gave her my email address, not really thinking I would hear from her again. And she emailed me a few times over the course of the first year that I was back here in London. And then in the December, by actually which point I was thinking, maybe I should move back to Bangkok because mm. I spent a year in London and wasn't particularly enjoying it. And um, so, yeah, she emailed me and she said um, she was in London. Could we meet up? So I shared my phone number with her. We met up for a coffee um, she didn't seem particularly well, but she assured me that she was okay. A couple of weeks later, it was just after Christmas or just around Christmas, she called me and she said, um, could I come and meet her because she wasn't well and she wanted to see a psychiatrist. And, um, she said, there's something wrong with my mind. <laughs> so I planned to meet her and we met at Gloucester Road Tube Station. Wow. And, um, she... Uh, so as soon as I saw her, she had. I, I realised that she was not well. She had her suitcase with her, and um, yeah, she was really uh, clearly not in a good space. She um, was very disorientated. Um, she kept asking me, you know, why uh, are we back in Russia? Um, she couldn't, yeah, string a sentence together. She was just yeah, really not in a good space. Um, so we. Uh, so, so I said, you know, uh, I'll get you some help and um, took her somewhere safe for that evening. Um, and the next day had, um, yeah, or next couple of days, planned to get her um, into the NRM, which is the National Referral Mechanism, which is a means of identifying people who've been trafficked. In the UK. In that's the what, UK. That's what we yeah. use. That's the government's response yeah. to, to victims of trafficking. Yeah. Yeah. So she actually, we, we had this interview, but she said to, she sat in the interview with her, uh, her hood up and all zipped up. And she said, I'm not going to say anything about the people who brought me here. They're good people. They wax my legs and they did my nails and mm. I don't want to get anyone in trouble. And she'd, um, so she'd been in prostitution since she was 15. Um, she told me, um, and her whole life had been exploitation and she assumed you know these people treating her nicely were well, waxing her legs were um doing that because i don't know they cared about her or, or whatever but um yeah so she wasn't prepared to tell her story which meant therefore she was not entitled to any support right so <clears throat> she was effectively given back to me um, but she was really not well um, took her to hospital, St. Thomas's, just down the road. Um, she was admitted, but a couple of days later, the social worker said, we're going to have to discharge your friend. 
um, can you come and get her? I said, no, I'm at work. I can't go and get her. Um, and she said, and I said, I've got nowhere for her to go. You know, I was living with people. I couldn't just have her in my flat, which um, would have been the easiest option. Um, so, uh, yeah, the, and I, I said, well, could you... Um, could you hold her at least till I've finished work and um and I said there's nowhere safe for her to go and the social worker said well could she go back to where she came from and I explained that was a brothel Mm -hmm. and um the social worker actually said to me well if it's not an abusive situation oh wow yeah crazy so yeah that's fine for her to go back to a brothel as long as she's not being abused what a strange response I know crazy so obviously didn't send her back there um and yeah then it was a really difficult um it ended up i think about three months of just trying to keep her keep her safe and i stayed in various different places throughout that time until the point that she had a complete breakdown and um she was then sectioned um and yeah um and then this hospital was brilliant with her and um, they took really good care f- of her, but at the same time, they were saying to me, we don't want to have to put her out on the street, but if there's nowhere for her to go, um, and she she wasn't prepared to you know, try and stay here um, and seek asylum here, wasn't prepared to tell her story, as I explained, so the only option was for her to go back. And so she ended up going back to Uzbekistan, and a month later, she contacted me, and she was back in Bangkok. Wow. And, um, and yeah, I hear from her regularly still, and she's still, unfortunately, still in the sex industry, still doesn't want to be doing that. Um, the time in London, she would say to me repeatedly, I want to be safe, I want to stop this work, I want to study, but without a safe place um, as a starting point, they mm-hmm. knew she couldn't begin that journey and um yeah so that was sort of and all through that time I kept thinking I just I wish I had somewhere um for her to be I wish I could you know if I could have just brought her into my own home I would have done um one it would have saved me a lot of hassle of trying to find her other places but there were I said I couldn't have couldn't do that at that time um and I was just thought that's that's what's needed a, a place where people don't need to tick all sorts of boxes when they want a way out of exploitation yeah so that's how um yeah the idea for starting a home began and then um we opened our first home in january 2016 amazing you've, you've opened a second one recently right yeah but um october last year can you say how many people you cater for or is that private oh yeah i can say that so in our small numbers Mm. um so in our first home it feels (laughs) feels more than it is um in our first home (laughs) it's uh it's four bedroom house but we've actually got five women living there um so we have an emergency space um but um the emergency is turned into semi-permanent right and um, in our second home, we've got three spaces. So, yes, yeah, so that's the, the accommodation base and support. But we realised quite early on that 
um, there was a lot more women <laughs> being referred to us than we could yeah. offer accommodation. Yeah. So we do we have an outreach service, and I don't actually know how many now we work with, maybe 30, um, yeah, um, who, who are living in sort of NAS accommodation, so asylum support accommodation or temporary housing or private rented, again, who have all experienced trafficking. Right. Um, but so you're not just working with the women that you're accommodating? No. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of the things you said which stood out to me was was long-term support, mm. right? And uh, it, I think a great deal of focus, quite understandably and quite quite rightly in many ways, is on rescue, getting someone out of a situation, mm-hmm. kicking down doors, sweeping them out of hell and getting them out. Um, I, I totally understand that. Less time is spent on the days, months, mm-hmm. years... Mm-hmm. Of people's lives that are, are wrecked mm-hmm. as a consequence of long periods of sustained abuse and the right. psychological harm and the spiritual and soulful harm that's done to individuals as they live through that lifestyle. That's not going to be dealt with with a door going through on a police raid and you know, there's the keys to a new place or there's you know you're not in a position of slavery anymore. Or good luck with the rest of your life. You know actually for many people that's that's where it, you know that, that it all begins. The new life begins, but the new challenges and struggles begin. And I've got so much admiration for you um, and other people that are part of that part of this process. The long, sticky, messy, grey, murky, elongated, prolonged story of restoration. Because it's not as glamorous as the door going in, and it's flipping hard. Mm. And uh, yeah, I really do. Take take my cap off to you. What what could we do better? Do you think from your experience the last few years? Maybe if I ask in behalf of, uh, I mean I know we've got an amazing international audience, but in behalf of this country where we're recording the podcast, London, UK, what do you think? For, have you made any observations um, that you think we could we could do what we need to do better? I mean obviously we we need to provide more safe houses mm. if 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 you're finding that you're not in a position to take on some of these referrals. And mm-hmm. Is that something that the government should be doing or are more people like yourself need to st- start things? Like, mm. what do you think? Gosh. Oh, that's a big question. You don't have to have a perfect political answer. I'm just interesting, interested uh-huh. in your, your, your opinion as a consequence of your experience. Mm. Oh, I mean, there's so many ways I could answer that. Um, I think for a lot of the women that we work with, one of the real challenges is that they wait such a long time for um, a decision on their case, with decision whether or not they ha- have actually been a victim of trafficking. Mm. Um, then they're waiting on a decision for their asylum because a lot of the women don't feel that they can return home. Um, mm. And essentially their life is on hold and they... Um, the fear of, uh, you know, that they may have to return to their country is terrifying. Um, just even today, <laughs> had a really difficult day. But one woman that we, one case that's just um, been referred to us because she doesn't want to go into the NRM system because she's afraid that it will mean that she may end up being deported. Wow. Um, 
trying to assure her that's not the case, but um, yeah, let's say that I think the, if the quicker decisions were made, that people then could feel that they could get on with their life, could get on with recovery, um, that would really help. I just wonder, Emily, <laughs> with all that going on, mm-hmm. um, you know, I just wonder what a normal day looks like for you. Today's podcast was was somewhat um, delayed. Um, not a problem with that, of course. Um, but due to the fact you had a situation to deal with, mm-hmm. we've known each other for a few months now, and um, I've, this is not the first time I've known you had to deal with situations. I know people's lives don't tend to fit around a normal nine to five schedule if you're dealing with their mm-hmm. you know their long term support. So how do you manage that? Like what motivates you to do what yeah. you do? Yeah, so every day potentially there is um some kind of crisis to attend to. Um by eleven o'clock this morning I'd heard some terrible things and I was just thinking, oh it's gonna be a long day and um when you say terrible things can you expand it at all uh so i was meeting with um one woman that we've been working uh, that we're working with and um yeah she's just been having a very difficult time Mm. and uh, just sharing some of her past experience and um and how it's um, impacting her at the moment Mm. so yeah um She's actually, I don't have, I don't do much of the casework or case support anymore, but um, I was meeting um, with this, I do meet with this particular woman. Um, so, yes, yeah, so we met for a couple of hours, and um, then just as he arrived, there was another situation with um, one of our other women that we're working with who, who's um, feeling suicidal, so I was having to connect with my colleague to... Um, deal with that situation but um also this evening at like about five o'clock got a text from our house manager at one of the houses who um who sent a a message to our team because she uh, that we've recently taken on a new resident a resident moved out a few weeks ago and a new resident moved in a couple of weeks ago and um she was catching up with her this evening and or earlier in the um earlier afternoon and asking how she had settled in and um apparently this woman had said to her now i'm at home right. now i'm home and that was just yeah a really nice sort of thing to hear at five o'clock having had a pretty difficult day yeah. so i think it's it's those moments of um yeah being able to provide a safe place for women and then um being able to see how they can essentially get on with living the life um, and uh, getting, yeah, accessing what they need for recovery that makes it worthwhile. And you've and seen, I imagine, in the last few years, women come through your services and leave your services. And mm-hmm. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, lots of women Go on to live independently. Yeah, which is Amazing. great. Um, I mean, a lot of the women that come to our home, are p- we get referred particularly um, difficult um, high trauma cases and um, so lots of the women will need long 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 term yeah, support yeah, yeah, um, yeah. but yeah 
loads of really amazing stories and I mean that is definitely what keeps me going and why I want to keep doing this work is because I have seen and do know so many uh, women who've been through this but then go on to live completely normal independent happy lives just um again today or not today this week connecting with um I would actually call her a friend now but she's somebody who I've casework for maybe three years and she's British um, and she was trafficked to uh, into Europe um, when she was 19 years old I think um, grew up in care um, went to university met a guy online and she was feeling uh, lonely at university so he came over to visit her um, then she he said well why don't you come visit me so she went over um and then couldn't didn't escape for a year until um but one day she i don't know she saw that you know her passport was lying around saw um a way to get some money came back into uh, took it and uh, took a cab to the um airport was really afraid what they were going to ask her at immigration because you know she'd been gone for a year um she was wearing like a nighty because it was the only piece of clothing that she could find but no one asked her any questions she um came back into the came back into the country still no one asked her any questions she went to her old social worker's office and her social worker said what are you doing here i thought you were at university and essentially yeah no one had seen that she was missing for an entire year and so i got to meet her long story how we connected but she had only been back here a few months and one of the first things she said to me was I just want to be normal again now you could see all over her that she'd experienced something terrible she couldn't look me in the eye she was really yeah it was it was um obvious that she was um had been through something very difficult and um yeah then uh, we sort of talked about what she wanted to do and in the end she ended up going back to university I said if you want to <laughs> lead a normal life you either need to study or you need to go to work I suggest going to study a bit easier um definitely to, easier than working yeah, yeah. so you, she you study anything like me yeah <laughs> exactly. <At> my university. <laughs> well she actually I think she, yeah she was so smart and wanted to study medicine tried started that but then um went on to study social work ended up with a first class degree top of the year yes um and she is just she is remarkable um you would if you met her now you would never know that what you know she was completely unrecognizable to the person that i met you know several years ago um got into running she runs ultras she's yeah she's amazing amazing woman it's yeah. incredible. Thanks for sharing that story. That's a fantastic story of hope. I, t- I told her she should come on your podcast. Oh, <laughs> you would be my guest if you're listening. That would be amazing. I'd be incredibly privileged to hear your story. Oh. You Very briefly, because I'm going to close fairly soon, but you did okay. just use the word ultra. Some people are like, what? Okay. What? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to talk about it. Either. <laughs> Emily... Um, recently took part in an ultra marathon 
um, which is obviously more than a marathon. It's it's ultra more. Yeah. Um, in order to raise money for Ella's, right? Yeah. What was it? What was that oh, all about? What were you going to talk about? Just that? a little bit. Just thirty um, seconds. So that was with Tribe. Very impressive. Yeah. Nah. How long um, was the run? It was really long. <laughs> it was <laughs> two hundred eighty kilometers. One hundred sixty miles. Wow. But over very big hills. Yeah. And yeah. I've told you many times how many hours I spent on my feet. A lot of hours. Amazing. Yeah, it was it was great. And yeah, so I can say that blood, sweat and tears goes into my fundraising. Yeah, literally, literally yeah. Yeah, that's mm. all you're giving me on that. What a comprehensive yeah. <laughs> account of that remarkable life-changing experience. Emily, we're almost up. And we're almost out of time. You've done incredibly well. Um, can I ask you a series of questions as we close? Would that be all right? Sure. I want to ask you three distinct questions. Mm-hmm. The first one is, what makes you angry about mm-hmm. the world? Mm-hmm. Um, I guess, well, I have a lot to be angry about when I you know, hear women's stories and mm. um, hear how they've been treated and yeah so stories of people using their power to control and manipulate um and harm other people uh makes me very angry yeah i bet flipping the coin okay um what makes you happy about the world um i'm a very happy person despite the anger yes there's also plenty of happiness Um, yeah no there is a lot of happiness um because i do see a lot of hope Mm. um i get to as i've said i think numerous times throughout this podcast get to work with incredible women um get to work with um yeah women who've experienced the very worst and really should yeah you know how how and why they would want to be happy or generous or compassionate towards others um they have no reason to and yet they choose to Mm. um and i I love seeing that i love seeing when um the women we work with are yet display those traits and are generous and kind and um that they i guess even grateful for the life that they get to lead and I think that that's lovely you know to be able to um have gratitude for life and to want to make the most of it despite having had terrible experiences Mm. um yeah final question Mm -hmm. if you could ask the world to change Mm -hmm. in one way yeah what would you ask well, I see a lot of the terrible things I see, a lot of the um, the, the stories I hear from the women, um, a lot of what they've experienced is because um, they have been treated like a commodity rather than a person, and they've been seen as disposable um, and, yeah, just something to be used rather than someone to be loved and respected and treated with compassion and kindness 
Um, so I would ask that, uh, yeah, that we can all respect and see the humanity in each other. Mm. I think that is a great ask of the world, and I think that's a great place to end our time together. Emily, thank you that we managed to get this done. Thank you for giving me your evening. I really appreciate um, having a chance to chat with you, hear a little bit more of your story, a lot in there that I didn't already know. I think you're amazing and your team is amazing and everything you're doing is incredible. And I want us to be able to help you in some way, if it's not financially, which I'd love it to be, um, but like if there's anything else we can do to support you, please let us know. And if there's anybody listening, like is there anything we, as a, a bunch of listeners we can do um, to support Ella's in any way? Can you think of anything? Is that you have like, obviously we can follow you guys yeah. on social media, but is there yeah. anything else you could ask of us at all? Um, yeah, you could follow us. That's great because then you can see when we have different needs and requests and um, sign up for our newsletter. And um, yeah, we often have ways that people can get, uh, can get involved and support our work. So... Yeah, thanks well, for that, Well, that's Bryn. great. I'm sure there'll be people that will take you from that. Thank you. Thanks for coming on. You're welcome. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> thanks for putting up with us <laughs> <laughs> and editing all the awkward bits out, including that bit. <laughs> no, we'll keep it that. Oh, you better not. Yeah, we kept it. So there you have it. I've come to realise that I just couldn't do what Emily does. I don't have the natural resources of compassion and patience required to do the job. But I can support her and her team, and perhaps you can too. If you're on Instagram, give them a follow at ellers.org.uk. That is, incidentally, the same name as their website. And like Emily said, sometimes they will reach out to their followers for help and support. If you're not in a financial or material position to support them, perhaps you could send them an encouraging message. I'm sure they would really appreciate that. I really appreciated Emily's honesty in that podcast. And like she shared, Ella's story hasn't concluded with a Hollywood happy ever after ending, has it? It's real and it's tough and it's sad. We need to find safe places to house people when they manage to escape a situation of exploitation where they have some time to get their lives together and receive the support that is available for them. Without these places, their vulnerability to being re-trafficked is huge. If we're serious about ending this and seeing those numbers begin to fall, I mean, 40 million people is the latest estimate, remember, for people living in slavery. We have to have a holistic approach. It doesn't end at the rescue stage. In many ways, that's just the beginning. And by not having appropriately equipped safe houses, it's like trying to collect water with a sieve. Anyway, thank you, as ever, for listening along. I'd also like to thank Sam for donating to our podcast Kickstarter campaign, which has allowed us to have these conversations. Thank you, Sam. This show has been produced by Blue Bear Coffee Co. for coffee lovers with a heart for justice. If you'd like to find out more about Blue Bear, you can go to our website, bluebearcoffee.com, and give us a follow on social media at Blue Bear Coffee Co. Until next time, peace.